The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court. Unless there is any, any more questions, we have to find an argument in this case. Right? All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to give their attention. Welcome to Divided Argument, an unscheduled, unpredictable Supreme Court podcast. I'm Dan Epps. And I'm Will Bud. So, Will, I had a nice visit with you in St. Louis. We're unfortunately back to recording remotely. It's less fun this way, but yeah. still good. Yeah, but it is necessary. It is our norm. So, I feel like not a ton has happened since we last recorded. We do have some opinions. We have had some arguments. We have one kind of interesting development in a pending case. Mm-hmm. But we don't have a ton of, you know, kind of blockbuster news. I'm kind of used to now, like there being these like blockbuster leaks reports coming out of the court that you know to talk about and and we don't we don't have anything like that yeah this is good right maybe the court's getting itself under control maybe maybe the chief justice does not have to resign so of those things i flagged where to start we don't have a ton of feedback uh, either so this this yeah maybe a more efficient episode (laughs) famous last words yeah well the court heard argument in the student loan cases that we talked about in our last episode in Biden versus Nebraska and Department of Education versus Brown. Heard argument on Tuesday. Argument lasted 35 hours, something <laughs> like that. I, I just am, am stunned by how quickly the norms changed around the argument length. Like, yeah. like it just, you know, not that long ago, arguments were an hour. Yeah. And then maybe under certain circumstances, they would grant a little bit of extra time if people like asked in, in advance or they, you know, they were like things to consolidate or different issues or something. Yeah. And like, yeah. are people not mad about this? They're just like going on for like sitting there for like hours. Like, that would drive me crazy if I was a justice. I, I wasn't used to it. Well, now they're used to it. I mean, this is the thing about equilibria. I feel like this is true of faculty meetings. This is true of large vertical length. This is true of many things. It's like, it's one thing if we all understand it's an hour and Chief Justice Rehnquist is going to interrupt people in the middle of their sentence to get us in at the hard hour. And that's just... That's the way it works. But once you get used to like, well, we'll let Justice Sotomayor ask a few more questions. We'll let Justice Kagan ask a few more questions. Well, I want to ask a few more questions. So either in a norm where everybody really holds their fire and the argument's clipped, or we all get to cut loose. Yeah. I mean, like, do they miss their lunch? Like, Sometimes they end up having the second argument after lunch, I think. No, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, maybe they should just start having arguments at nine or something to give them more time. Yeah, I would like need to eat on the bench or something. I get I get pretty hungry. Uh, well, maybe it's if anybody's been in the courtroom and noticed whether the justices are like sneaking power bars or something. <laughs> uh, I'd be curious. So, what happened in those many hours of argument? We learned very little. We learned, no surprise, that six of the justices are pretty skeptical about the lawfulness of this program, and three of the justices are more inclined to defend it. I didn't feel like I think that where we were. Last week, and where your prediction was, you know, on the merits, yes, uh, justice, uh, this conservative justices are skeptical, liberal justice is not, but also on standing. I didn't see a majority to accept your standing argument. I think that's right. Uh, I mean, I, that doesn't have to be my standing argument, but uh, any standing argument. I think Justice Barrett was the most skeptical of the of the conservative justices who seemed skeptical on the merits. She seemed to be the most interested in the standing theories and. You know, even her, I found sort of hard to read. She asked questions yeah. of both sides in a way, but but I wouldn't be shocked to see her say there's no standing. I'd be pretty surprised if, if I mean, Justice Kavanaugh asked almost nothing about it. Justice Gorsuch asked some questions that could cut either way, so you could get yeah. six or seven votes against standing, but that wouldn't be what you'd expect. Yeah, and I think Justice Alito, who was the hardest sort of charging on the pro standing theory, he had this frame that doesn't surprise me that I expect where the court is going to come down, which is. Does any case squarely hold that we cannot possibly take standing in this case? And the answer is no. <laughs> and if your model of law is, you know, I'll do is this. Is there anything we... that like absolutely stops me from doing the thing I really want to do? Right. And, if the, and the answer is no. Like if they absolutely want to and they, they could do it. And I think they want to and they're going to do it. it. It was interesting. And this is to the broader theme we did mention, the sort of the title of last week's episode. It was interesting that the justices seemed pretty focused on the Mohila theory of standing, the the least incorrect theory of standing, yeah, and not on broader, you know, mass versus EPA, 
Can you take yeah, any credit for that? You think? I mean, I, I, I thought that was striking. Um, that uh, really seemed to be what the questions were about. Yeah. I, look, I mean, I think that is the least incorrect. Theory. I mean, I, I don't want to take any credit for it, but I'd be happy if that if that's the theory they come to. I'd, I'd be happy that they're at least walking back from the, the, the precipice. Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of questions about that, about the relationship between Mohila. Justice Barrett was asking, you know, interesting questions about, you know. Is Mohila, you know, also a state actor? Does it get sovereign immunity? You know, what is the, you know, are those all three different tests? Mm-hmm. And it seems like the answer is maybe those should all be different tests. That was a little confusing because I think yeah. in the lower court briefing, the SG's position was that the sovereign immunity test and the standing test are the same. That, which is, I think, my view that if you're a sort of independent arm of the state, whether you're an arm of the state or independent for sovereign immunity purposes, is kind of the same for the other side of the V. I didn't think um, that's what Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelager was saying at the argument. It's definitely not what yeah, said at the argument. Yeah. I think that's in part because nobody actually knows what the sovereign immunity test is. <laughs> There's like a four-factor test yeah. that's kind of confusing. Yeah. There's a much better concurring opinion by Dr. Stephen Williams that says it just comes down to whether you can sue and be sued, which is the mm-hmm. factor I think relevant to Mohila. So my view, and the view we take in the amicus brief, is they should be the same, but you're currently kind of confused with the sovereign immunity test too. <laughs> so let's focus on this one. Probably the sovereign immunity test done rightly would also look about the same. But and then the question of whether it's a state actor is a separate question. Whether like because that that was could it yeah violate the equal protection clause? Yeah, you know that seems strange because of course it's separate. Like counties, individual government officials, like political parties are all state actors. And I'd be pretty surprised yeah. if anybody thought the state could sue on behalf private private prisons. Like, sure. Yeah. 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 If the Republican Party primary was if something happened to it in some way, and the Republican Party didn't want to sue, that like the state of this could sue on its behalf to vindicate its own rights, that would be bizarre. I'm not even sure states can sue on behalf of like individual government officials in their personal capacity who don't want to sue. So that seems strange. But okay. So we'll find out. I assume this is going to be a late June case. Yeah. I assume that's right. I assume yeah. that's right. Yeah, because it's already, you know, it's already March. And, you know, even if they started this one earlier in the term, you know, if it was an earlier argument, I still think this could be a late end of term case. But, you know, given how late in the term it is already. It's going to be a double dissent case, you know, because sometimes there are cases that are like 6-3 or 5-4 where it's like there's one lead opinion and one lead yeah. dissent. But this is presumably going to have a dissent on the merits and a dissent on standing. By separate do. people? I think that's usually how you, I mean, it doesn't have to be, but I think that's the norm. Is that Why not just write one big... I don't know. I just It's often the norm that Justice Kagan would write this merits dissent and be joined by the other two, and meanwhile, Justice Jackson would write the standing dissent, be joined by the other two. I'm like, think of Obergefell as like, you know, 5-4 and like every... Yeah. Yeah. Justice has their own dissent. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's in the works. So far, Val mostly validates our prior. So... <laughs> We're good at predicting. Else? We got this. Uh, well, so yeah, another big case order. that might go away. <laughs> um, we spent some time in the past on this case, Moore versus Harper, the independent state legislature doctrine in North Carolina. You remember that one? I do. Yeah, everybody should remember that one. Big one, but potentially maybe, big one. Well, yeah. So a funny thing happened on February third that got a little bit of attention on among Supreme Court nerds, which is that the North Carolina Supreme Court granted a petition for rehearing. In the case, and it's complicated. We should talk about yeah. it in a sec, but like the case has like multiple pieces, and there's a remedy piece. They're yeah. like multiple different sort of collected cases, but but the North Carolina Supreme Court had a change in personnel, and the change in personnel appears to have led to the North Carolina Supreme Court granting a petition for a hearing, which is very rare at the North Carolina Supreme Court, just as it is at any at the U.S. Supreme Court. The cert petition in this case was granted about a year ago. Yeah, the cert petition by the Supreme Court was granted in. March of 2022, March 17th. Yes. And yet somehow this case, which has been up there for, you know, months and months and months and months, is now still like kicking around back in North Carolina Supreme Court. Yeah. I bet the justices are pretty surprised when they found out about this. Yeah. And I don't know when they found out about this, but uh, yesterday, as we're recording, so Thursday, March 2nd, the court issued an order directing the parties and the SG to file supplemental briefs on the following question. What is the effect on this court's jurisdiction under 28 U.S.C. 1257A and Cox Broadcasting Corps versus Cohn of the North Carolina Supreme Court's February 3rd, 2023 order granting rehearing and any subsequent state proceedings? Ten pages to be filed by Monday, March 20th. Which, interestingly, neither party in the case, no party in the case had addressed. 
Right. Nobody filed anything. I sort of expected at some point somebody was, whoever thought they were going to lose was going to file a notice of mootness or something. <laughs> nobody did. Why yeah. do you think nobody brought it up? Is it because everybody wants an answer? I generally don't know. I didn't. I was hoping you were going to have a theory as to that because, you know, maybe just nobody knows. Maybe, maybe they both think it doesn't matter. You know, right. it's not clear it doesn't matter. Right. I think it's possible they both thought it didn't matter. I think it's possible that everybody wants the court to answer the question. I mean, and there is this. And just just to be clear, so what the what we think the North Carolina Supreme Court is going to do, right, is going to change the merits decision about whether the North the state Supreme Court. Potentially, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, presumably that's why. That's I don't. I don't know how many justices it takes to grant a hearing in the North Carolina Supreme Court, but there's obviously there's been a change in partisan control in the court. And right. Presumably that's that's why they're doing this, right? But presumably, presumably they're going to reconsider. Yeah, their their merits holding that this either that there is a partisan gerrymandering requirement or that this violates the partisan gerrymandering requirement if it exists. Yeah. Or at least that that's on the table. So as I say, it is possible everybody wants an answer because you know the, this is the kind of issue. I think Justice Kavanaugh said this in one of the many writings in this issue that good to settle the answer to this question not in the middle of a presidential election where everybody everybody knows exactly who it'll help and who it'll hurt and the appearance you know the court ends up being caught up in politics. So you know now that's kind of an argument for advisory opinions, just like not yeah. what the court is supposed to do. But but practically speaking. The other thing I wondered is this. is it, It's happened a couple of times recently <laughs> that when a case has started to go moot at the Supreme Court, like the justices have gotten really mad about it. Yeah. Like it happened a few years ago in one of the New York gun cases yep. that the New York City Council and legislature like, like repealed the law. Rule, yeah. yeah. And the justices, I mean, some of the justices were, were really ticked off about it. You know, here you are. Like there is this kind of funny dynamic of like get to the Supreme Court, hear oral argument, hear how it's going. <laughs> and then if you don't like how it's going, try yeah. to make it go away. And so I did wonder if like everybody is just afraid the court will be mad at them and like think it, you know, I mean, if, if you're the respondents yeah. and you bring this up, the court's going to think it's your fault somehow. Yeah. <laughs> so you might just be like, look, I, they can find out about it if they want to. I don't, yeah. I don't want them getting mad at me. So they want 10 page briefs due in a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Not two and a half weeks. So it's a short, short brief. So they've got to be really concise. Yeah. Quick turnaround. Yeah. Presumably the parties have been thinking about this for the past month. <laughs> so I'm now curious what they say. Yeah. There's two questions here. There's the question the court seems interested in is whether the court still has jurisdiction. And then you wrote this really interesting blog post that actually seems right to me. Um, saying I love that the tone a, of skepticism in your voice. Yeah, no, you, you you get one right now and then. Suggesting that there's actually this totally you know converse problem, yeah. which is how does the state court have jurisdiction to keep messing with the case after certiorari has been granted. Yeah. So the so the court's question, just to be clear, is for state court proceedings, the Supreme Court has to wait until the state court decision is final. It can mm-hmm. like grant cert in the middle of stuff yeah. for federal courts, but for state courts, it has to be final. And the court has a case called Cox. So it's final to some exceptions. Yeah. yeah. Final doesn't really mean final in four various cases that the court kind of made up, but but those are the exceptions. And so the court is worried about has this case suddenly become not final or maybe been revealed not to be final. By whatever's going on here. I have the flip side worry, which is how does the North Carolina Supreme Court have jurisdiction to make a case non-final? Like once the court is, so there's a well-established principle of law, weirdly hard to source <laughs> other than decisions that just in like ordinary appeals, when you appeal the case, when you, whatever you appeal from the district court to the appellate court, uh, the district court loses jurisdiction over it. Right, so like the district yeah. court can't watch how the Seventh Circuit argument is going and then like change its mind or whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, unless and that it's seems, like a collateral collateral issue. Sure, yes. If it's a collateral issue, then you know, or sometimes like the merits are in the court of appeals, well, the attorneys' fees are below. But like you, there are various cases about sort of slicing the issues in a way to make sure that only one part of the case is in one place at a time. Um, so far as I can tell, it doesn't come up as often. But as far as I can tell, the same principle applies to cert. And so far as I can tell, the same principle applies to state courts. Now, some people have the reaction like, well, state courts are different because they're sovereign and the Supreme Court can't, you know, tell them what to do. But I don't think they're different on this point. Like, yeah. we have appellate jurisdiction over state Supreme Courts under Martin versus Hunter's Lessee, and so they have to listen. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that has to be right. That, like, I'm trying to think of the right hypo to explain the point. But if, you know, the court is hearing some. 
I mean, let's let's try to come up with can we come up with a clearer hypo that would really illustrate it? There's some case pending on cert from a state court, and then a state court does something something wacky, right? Let's say that it's you know the there's a case that was dismissed in the state courts, and then like it's on cert, and then the state court is suddenly like, no, let's just go have a trial anyways, or something like that, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, obviously this comes up this comes up more directly if you imagine like a capital case where the state can't like go ahead and execute the person. While the appeal's pending, but usually there, there's an isn't that because there's a stay issue, a stay of execution. So maybe that's different. Yeah, I feel like that, that, that they might still be able to, but for that stay. So I think the the class. Just imagine a criminal conviction where you know the state supreme court affirms it, and then it goes to the supreme court, and it looks like the supreme court's going to reverse and make some sort of new constitutional law, Miranda or whatever. And so after argument, the state supreme court says, "Well." On second thought, we've decided to grant your <laughs> relief Su- under Su- the... Sponte, yeah. Yeah, Sponte on some ticky-tacky like, yeah. received state procedural thing that doesn't make any precedent. And I imagine they do that all the time to make sure that the yeah. Supreme Court doesn't ever stop them. Something something seems wrong with that to me. Yeah. I, I think the Supreme Court would be rightly irritated. <laughs> yeah. And and it's sort of related to the first point. That, like, yeah. The court that, only, that seems like it sounds more in kind of like a mootness kind of exception to mootness doctrine kind of problem because it's kind of like the voluntary cessation problem in mootness where like one party Mm -hmm. is like no we'll stop doing it just to moot the case and then the court has you know the the rule is like well that's not enough to moot the case and this is not quite that because it's like the court below the court right the the voluntary cessation doctrine is all about the party i know yeah yeah Yeah. this is weird that would be weird so I, i will say this is one of my favorite obscure opinions it's a case called honig versus doe where somebody i think it's chief justice rehnquist floats this up idea that's never gotten any traction, although maybe it's the secret rule, that Supreme Court cases can never become moot. His argument is like once this court takes jurisdiction, everybody's got a broader like the country now has an interest in the resolution of the case. That can't, so, be, that can't be right. It can't be right, and yet it's obviously how the justices feel. Like yeah. every time they grant cert and then the case settles or somebody repeals the law or something happens, they get pissed and feel like they've been cheated out of their right to yeah. opine on the If it's like a criminal case and then like the defendant just dies, you know, which happens sometimes. Yeah. Dies I, think, of, you know, I mean, they, obvi- they, they can't continue to. Uh, and they don't. I mean, the court rejects this principle. Yeah. <laughs> I think just the school, yeah, it says like that's yeah. not how it works. Yeah. Because if that were right, I mean, who would care on the front end either? If it's just basically about like deciding an issue of importance, why do they even need a case? They can just you know issue well, some advisory opinions. You might say, though, look, it has to be at the time we grant that it has to be a case, and that's a good check. But then you know whether we get the opinion done in a week or a year shouldn't really matter. Like it should still. At that point, everybody's filed their amicus briefs. Everybody's spent all their time on it. I think this rule is lawless. But a little part of me, I thought about writing an article about this. A little part of me thinks like if this is how the Supreme Court feels, they should just adopt the damn rule. <laughs> Okay, so your intuition is like, how does the state court do this? I, that seems kind of right to me. And like, where does that come from? It seems like it just kind of has to be like inherent in the relationship between a higher court and a lower court. That it's yeah, just, you know, I think you'd say it's implicit in an appeal. That, yeah. and I, th- I found some, you know, old treatises that say this. Like, what certiorari used to mean was like we take the record, put it in a box, and ship it up to the next court. And yeah. there was a, a rule everybody understood that like. Whoever had the record, you know, the record is the <laughs> yeah. ball. Whoever yeah. had the record is the person who can make, yeah. you know, forward plays at this. Now point. it's all online, and so you know, yeah. that we don't. It, it works differently. And, well, yeah, but still, like we move the online. You know, we grant the writ of certiorari. We move the. Yeah. <laughs> we move the ball. So my instinct is that these might even be related. That maybe the North Carolina Supreme Court can keep acting on whatever part of the case the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't have. Yeah. They have control of the remedy in the court of the merits, whatever. Even if that would moot, or only in ways that don't interfere with, only in ways that don't interfere with the part the court has. Yeah, they got to leave the they got to leave the merits alone. So they could start saying, well, you know, we you know the merits are what they are, but here's you know assuming the merits are what they are, here's the remedy, and the court can come in at the end and be like, actually, the merit you're wrong on the merits. Yeah, and then this may well. I mean, we'll see. Also, if the parties notice this problem, care about this problem, but I guess I wouldn't be shocked to see. The parties might have to figure out what they think about this. Or that. Can, can we have you file a ten-page amicus? Well, let's see. There... The parties and the solicitor general are directed to file, so I am no. not a party, and it I am doesn't not a say solicitor general. Will Bode is forbidden to file. It's true. So I guess I could ask for leave to file. Yeah, but it's like I, a five-pager. Yeah, but I don't. Just, I mean, the thing is, I don't understand this problem. <laughs> like, I spotted the issue, right? I get a B on the exam. Well, you could do that. You could file a brief saying this is an important issue, and the court should. 
Request another round of briefing on it, or at least helpful amicus brief over. Yeah. Other problem is I'm not a member of the Supreme Court bar. (laughs) I am. I'll sign (laughs) it. I'll sign it. Uh, Thanks. I'll be your counsel, counsel of record. (laughs) I don't think that makes them happy, Dan. Okay. Because it's me. No, just because it's annoying. I don't think it's annoying. You're just giving them some stuff to think about, right? Right, but giving the justice things to think about on like hard jurisdictional problems, they usually find that annoying. Know, nice but thing. it's important, right? Like it's it's not like it's a thing they're supposed to they're supposed to do on their own, and they're obviously trying to do it on their own. They're just flying blind. Yeah. So first of all, what do you think they're going to say? What do you think the different parties are going to say? Yeah, my guess is the main parties will say that the court still has jurisdiction. In part because it would be awkward that they didn't bring it up until now if they think the court doesn't have jurisdiction. That's not a great reason. Well, maybe they could come up with a reason why they figured that out and it wasn't true. And I guess if the SG will write something more interesting and nuanced, that, you know, sometimes the SG can write a brief that's like, we think there is jurisdiction, but here is why you should think there isn't jurisdiction. Like, you know, they're different. But, but I assume everybody wants the court to hear this. I assume everybody's going to say the court has jurisdiction somehow. Everybody? You think even the SG? Mm-hmm. I guess that's my prediction, yeah. Because there's multiple people, there's like two sets of, there's the challengers, there's two sets of state, res- uh, of the state and non-state respondents. The two different respondents splitting, as I think about it. I can imagine that. And why you think the state will want to say it's still alive. Yeah. And the non-state respondents will want to say... Maybe not. Yeah, I don't know, but, and this is just one of these things that's like technical enough and lots of people don't think about it, that I, it could be that you know they're all going to look into it and... That they don't know what they're going to say until they yeah. have their associates read Cox carefully. Well, I but, guess we will see. And then I assume that the court is like putting the pen down on the opinions for now. It's like when you're, I remember when you're a lawyer and there's some tough assignment you don't want to work on, and then you, you know, you get some reprieve. And it's, I would guess that the majority opinion is already circulated and that somebody who needs to join the majority opinion or somebody in dissent is now like raising this. So maybe, yeah, maybe you put your pet, but I don't know if there's a lot of like, they probably don't stop like site checking the majority opinion or whatever, but my guess is that the, that's where things are. And, you know, the majority opinion could lose. You only need a couple of people to suddenly spin off on a jurisdiction to scramble the lineup. Yeah, that'll be fun. It'll be interesting. <laughs> fun. Uh, I don't know. This, You're kind this, of fun. This is what gets me going. Yeah. You're Mr. Jurisdiction. Yeah. Other stuff like that to talk about? I don't think so. Nothing else of great interest on the shadow docket or uh, the other kind of, yeah. The, do- the docket docket. <laughs> but we got some opinions finally yeah. after a long time. Including one on the the other docket, the original docket. I don't really want to talk about that one. So we had five opinions recently. I think a couple of which we're going to talk about. One of the opinions we're not going to talk about, Delaware versus Pennsylvania, Justice Jackson's first majority opinion about the definition of a sheetment in a dispute between various states about money orders. One reason this case is interesting is it implicates the more versus Harper issue we talked about earlier, just a second ago. This was the case where after argument, the special master, Judge Laval, apparently like listened to the argument and realized he'd screwed up <laughs> and then amended his order and like switched sides. And I think there was a supplemental briefing in which the parties even invoked you know, this principle. Well, they all kind of agreed that it was a little different there because, like, it's technically not an appeal. So, probably as a special master, you know, he can like change his mind and say whatever he wants because he's just kind of advising the court. But the same problem and the same. So, like, the court is <laughs> the court is surely familiar with the recent problem of here we grant review and then people start like <laughs> changing yeah. their minds. While we're <laughs> that's a good point. So, yeah, because the special master is kind of like the lower court. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah. So that's the only reason it's interesting. And we have an opinion, a couple other opinions we don't need to talk about. Barton Werfer versus Buckley, textual bankruptcy opinion about definition of fraud. And Helix Energy Solutions versus Hewitt, which had a very lively and interesting argument from Paul Clement and a kind of like endless textualism fight between Paul Clement and Elena Kagan. But the result is that Elena Kagan, who is a justice, wins that fight. <laughs> over just Paul Clement was not. <laughs> We thought about talking about that one, but we got to kind of fire a little bit. But that one, you know, uh, the lineup in that one is Kagan with the chief, Thomas, Sotomayor, Barrett, and Jackson, and then Gorsuch dissenting, and then Kavanaugh separately dissenting, joined by Alito. So, yeah. And a little bit of interesting administrative state going off. Like, there's a shadow fight there about like various regs that the have been issued about interpreting the statute, and the parties didn't challenge the validity of those regs. And some of the justices were annoyed that they didn't challenge them because that would be a much more interesting question than the definition of paid on a weekly basis. 
Can we talk about speaking of lineups? Can we talk about Bittner versus yeah. United States first? Yeah, this one is interesting, and it's got a lineup. Oh, I'll get to it in a minute that I don't fully understand, and I'm hoping you will solve for me. But this is a case about the Bank Secrecy Act, mm-hmm. which imposes some, I think, some fairly onerous requirements on people that have non-U.S. bank accounts mm-hmm. to file reports about those bank accounts, sort of listing them, or if you have more than a certain number, you don't have to list them, but you kind of summarize them. And this is totally inconsistent with my understanding of movies. I thought if you had a Swiss bank account, <laughs> you could put any number of millions of dollars in there and nobody got to know about it. Well, you right? could, and then they decided to crack down. Yeah, okay. And this is part of that. And so, you know, Switzerland had to kind of back off on that. And and so, but now, you know, this this is way broader than, you know, just, you know, limiting people that have just millions of dollars in Swiss bank accounts. So basically, like any foreign bank account you have is subjects you to this. And the problem is that you can get in trouble for not doing this, uh, even if you do so like kind of accidentally. Like you don't know you have money in a foreign bank account? You, you non, even if you do so non-willfully, like you don't know about the obligation to file or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if you don't... And the question is how much trouble? <laughs> yeah, and if, if you don't do it, even if it's non-willful, if it's willful, like, you know, it's real bad. But if it's non-willful, you can get a $10,000 penalty, up to a $10,000 penalty for failing to to do the thing you're supposed to do. And the question is, what's the thing? What's the unit that can subject you to this quite significant, potentially quite significant penalty? Is it Mm -hmm. per account you don't report? So let's say you have 50 accounts, and you don't file a report at all, and you don't report any of them, does that subject you to you know $500,000 in penalties? Mm-hmm. Or does it subject you to $10,000 in penalties for not following the one report about all the accounts? Mm-hmm. And here, you know, this, there's a couple different cases involved, but one of them was going to be subject to a $2.72 million penalty for not reporting you know, yeah. over a period of years, 272 accounts. Well, so can we start with the, the facts and the cases? So this is I found a little confusing. And I think funny. So this is just a case from the Fifth Circuit, right? Yeah. Involving Mr. Bittner. Yeah. I, I gather there was a split in the Fifth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit. Yeah, and they just gave us the facts from the other one. Well, and I think it's because they're very sympathetic, right? Yeah. So just a, so so the Fifth Circuit facts, which Justice Gorsuch does not lead with, but which the dissent leads with. I'll just, you know, even the first sentence. Alexander Bittner, an American citizen, held as much as $16 million across more than 50 bank accounts in Romania, Switzerland, and Liechtenstein. And there's a footnote, you know, to various patterns of his bank holdings over many years. So it's a lot of accounts, it's a lot of money. You, it was one of them, so you, you maybe conjure up certain stereotypes we have about... But it was non-willful. It was non-willful. Maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> but it's just, you know, that's the fact of the case is, you know, so this guy was $16 million in... 272 separate bank accounts get in trouble for a lot of them. But just as Gorsuch, no, he leads with the facts of the Ninth Circuit case. Yes. The Ninth Circuit case that's not on review, <laughs> which involves a woman yeah. whose father died and she inherited some money in the United Kingdom. And, you know, then she had this bank out there and she didn't know that she had to report it. And, you know, that's like a much more sympathetic fact pattern. Maybe it's the more common fact pattern, but it's like you immediately assume it's non-willful, you immediately feel like this seems excessive to, you know, fine her 13 times for this, like, inherited money that maybe she didn't understand how to deal with. So I just thought it was really funny to, obviously, opinions often, like, spin the facts differently and based on how they want you to feel about it, but yeah. it's the first time I've seen just, like, kind of invent, you know, an opinion start with the facts of a different case. Yeah, Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the facts of the yeah. case under review are yeah. not good. That was, that was a nice move, I just scorsage. Yeah. It's funny. Okay, and so you know you've kind of already tipped off which way it's coming out because Justice Gorsuch is giving you the sympathetic facts to make you want to agree with him that uh, it's it's a per report, not a per account penalty, so right. a smaller penalty. But the lineup, a little weird. It's Justice Gorsuch plus the Chief Alito, Kavanaugh, and Justice Jackson. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then dissent is Barrett, Thomas, Sotomayor, Kagan. That's just the standard political five four, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, that's how these things go. And then, by the way, for reasons we'll talk about in a second, part of the Gorsuch opinion is not a majority. We'll it's only just this Jackson and Gorsuch, yeah, yeah. that well-known, that yeah. well-known duo. The, the duo. I thought that was. I mean, it's a little bit of a weird breakdown initially. It's a case where I would. I think the political ideology, just at like very first glance, is is on Gorsuch's side. Like it's like the pro little guy, you know, like against the tough government trying to impose penalties, but. 
except, you know, then you say, well, it's kind of like a white collar, you know, business money case. And maybe that flips the ordinary, yeah. uh, ordinary valence of those kind of cases. Yeah. But that kind of leads me into an indeterminate place. Yeah. I mean, this is actually one of the things I, I find funny about attempts to like do the naive legal realist thing. Yeah. I'm like, criminal fines against rich people who have money in foreign countries are those. Are those yeah. cases or are those conservative yeah. cases? I'm confused. I find this lineup inexplicable. I guess I'll start there. Maybe this will, we should talk about yeah. the reasoning and the issues a little bit. But maybe you get, for the most part, it seems to me the dissent contains the most textualist justices who don't also have a strong passion for the rule of lenity. Yeah. Just a Sotomayor is the one oddball a little bit there, but like Barrett Thomas Kagan. You know, if you ask me who are the most textual justices in the court, presumably we'd say Barrett, Thomas, Gorsuch, Kagan. Mm-hmm. And we lose Gorsuch because, well, because of the part of the opinion that only he and Justice Jackson join. And then Justice Sotomayor is a slight surprise there, but I don't know. I can get most of the yeah. way there. Yeah. And some people, some commentators have tried to come up with elaborate theories of how this is all the justices like divvying up, you know, sides so that they can like look like they're, look like they're not totally partisan about everything. I, I don't think that's. I don't think that's that, the way these things work. I mean, I don't think I don't know if that's the way things work or the way it's appropriate. But if the court is sufficiently, you know, all these we have all these reports, but if the court is, you know, disorganized and fractured, and it's the scorpions again, you know, whatever. <laughs> and if the court is sufficiently organized that they can like collectively agree to yeah. like randomly draw lots and bank your cases yeah. to to make us all wonder, like in advance, the libs are like, okay, uh, Justice Jackson, you you go the other way with this one, and we'll you know shore things up over here. Yeah. More power to them if they can if they can manage yeah. that kind of a, that kind of a football play. Okay, so what do you think of this case, Dan? So I think it's really interesting. I think you know maybe we should try to break down the text a little bit. So let's maybe look at page five of the majority opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay, which kind of Takes breaks us down thirty-one USC fifty-three fourteen and thirty-one USC fifty-three twenty-one. Yeah, and. So, you know, 5314 requires, it says the Secretary of the Treasury is supposed to require people to keep records, file reports, and so on when they make a transaction or maintain a relation with a foreign financial agency. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then it says that reports shall contain information about the identity and address of participants in a transaction or relationship and various other things. And so there, as Justice Gorsuch highlights, the text does not talk about individual accounts. It talks about the kind of duty to file reports mm-hmm. and so forth. If you have multiple accounts, do they all go on one report or do you have to file one report per account? Well, as I understand it, that's something that the secretary can determine, right? That's not clearly something that the statute determines, mm-hmm. right? Like that's something that regulations like they can they can sort of set up regulations about that. You file a report in the way and to the extent the secretary prescribes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, section fifty three twenty one, you know, authorizes these penalties, and it says pegs in Justice Gorsuch's words, it pegs the quantity of non willful penalties to the quantity of violations mm-hmm. uh, in the statutory language. Violations. Okay, that doesn't really answer the question, right? Well. So Justice Gorsuch says, look, the duty is the duty is report based, not account based. Right? The duty is to file a report. To do the thing that you're supposed to do. That the, the thing you're supposed to do file a report. The current structure is the report should be about all your accounts. Yeah. So what did you fail to do? You failed to file one report and that's about twenty nine accounts. Yeah. That's one failing. Just yeah. like if the, the report is supposed to contain four different pieces of information and your fail to file that report is one violation, yeah. not Four violations because you didn't yeah. get them the bank account and the whatever and the whatever. Oh, yeah. you know, that that what I it's not crazy. Yeah, yeah. Do you buy that? No, I mean it. It does suggest though that if the government wants to, it can just like change the regulations and just say you have to file one report for every account. Presumably, yeah, like a separate, like a did like a individualized reports. I was confused about yeah. I was confused about that whether this is a whether this is a rule that's dependent on the current these reports are called F bars. Yeah. Kind of funny. <laughs> I might laugh at it every time I see it. Whether it's F bar based and so therefore the the secretary could like impose a bunch more paperwork on everybody if they want to rack up the penalties. I was confused by that. And then the opinion makes like apart from the text, they make this move the next move on sort of uh, in part B. You see this? Contextual clues. Yeah. 
this is kind of surprising. They look at like various IRS letters and forms and like guidance documents the courts, yeah. the government issued. They Which say is not really something you would normally like. There's some circumstances you might do that in like a administrative law case, maybe, mm-hmm. but like just as a matter of straightforward statutory interpretation, like it's not clear that stuff is relevant at all. Yeah. Well, and so so then the majority has a footnote about this. Yeah. The dissent expresses surprise that we cite the government's <laughs> guidance documents. We don't see why. Our point is not that the administrative guidance is controlling, nor is it that the government's guidance documents have consistently endorsed Mr. is reading the law, because the guidance documents are back and forth. It's simply that when the government or any litigant speaks out of both sides of its mouth, no one should be surprised if its latest utterance isn't the most convincing one. This is no new principle in the law any more than in life. And the court cites Skidmore, one of the agency deference yeah. cases that says that, like, even when there's no deference, you know, you kind of yeah. take the account the agency said. It's still weird, though. I've read that footnote a few times, and I'm still not totally unsure of, like, what these yeah. things. It says, no one should be surprised if its latest utterance is the most convincing one. Okay, but, like, again... Like, what are the other utterances supposed to show us? Like, don't yeah. isn't the court's job just to figure out whether it's convincing or not? I yeah. mean, maybe, and so it maybe seems like kind of a, like you could, it seems like maybe this was worth like a sentence or two in the majority being like, although yeah. the government says this, it's, you know, you know, it has read it differently previously, you know, citing examples, but. Right. Know. So I did wonder a couple things about this passage. So I did wonder if this passage is, if it's crucial to some of the joiners, like, is this, is this like the chief and Justice Kavanaugh are really actually moved by this, that there's something kind of shady about the agency saying, you know, you should guidance them to yeah. its mind and or something like that. Or just, the court gives it enough emphasis that you kind of wonder if this is really doing some work for some of the people who join. Thought too, I, I do know that if you talk to tax people about administrative law, I think a lot of them, I'm sure Ron Levin's going to write to us, but I think you talk to tax people, they take these guidance things that the IRS does like way more seriously than lots of other administrative law people do. Like, you know, they'll say formally, yes, it's just an IRS letter or it's just an IRS form, but like everybody knows those are really important. I don't understand what these documents are, whether these are the ones that everybody understands are important. Yeah. But I get the sense that like the tax system does work heavily on like forms and letters and stuff like that. Yeah. And this, the point he makes in this section does feed into something he says in the next section. I don't know if we're Mm -hmm. ready to talk about that yet. If you have more you want to say about, I have one more about this. So just the last theory about this is sometimes it seems like it's important to a court to show that like they did not completely make this theory up. Mm-hmm. There is somebody mm-hmm. once, five years ago, who said this. <laughs> Even if it's a random, this is like in the independent legislature case. Aren't you working like, on a paper that's sort of about this? Exactly. So Richard Ray and I are working on a paper about this kind of, the need to show that your argument is at least not completely out of left field. Even if you sort of ironically do that by coming up with like one random out of left field source. Joseph Story at the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention in 1830 said this. <laughs> and so I didn't make it up. And this is a little bit of that flavor. It's like, look, <laughs> 12 years ago, somebody at the IRS said what we say now. So even if somebody else did the other thing, like we didn't make it up. Yeah. So it might, might be that. Okay. So interestingly, this part uh, joined by everybody. So the other conservatives seem to agree that this has some relevance, you know, under Skidmore, I guess, to sort of show you that the government's argument is less persuasive. Although, again, there's no deference here. So it's just... It's mm-hmm. a little it's a little weird. But then we have this next section where three of them drop out. So it's just Gorsuch and Jackson, in which, as you mentioned earlier, the uh, the opinion, the the non-majority opinion, strongly endorses the rule of lenity, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that normally, you know, we're talking about this in the context of criminal statutes, but it also uh, applies to kind of penalty, other kinds of civil penalty statutes, that uh, you you construe them strictly kind of in, in favor of the defendant, in favor mm-hmm. of the little guy. Mm-hmm. This is a principle that is out there that basically the court talks about here and there and says is really important and then never follows, almost never follows. And the court has, you know, the I, I think the kind of mainstream view of this principle in the court is like the rule of lenity is a thing that comes in like after you look at the 12 other things you're supposed to do in statutory interpretation. And if at the very, very end, if like things, everything is perfectly in equipoise, the tie goes to the defendant. Mm-hmm. But like basically things are never in perfect equipoise. Mm-hmm. That's one vision of it. Yeah. 
which I think, I mean, would you say that's fair as to where like the majority of the court has been, you know, over the last couple decades? On paper, although, right, we've talked about this several cases, like the court often gets these criminal cases where it does seem to kind of read the statute with a skeptical eye to the prosecution. Yeah, know, we had, but it doesn't say it's doing that because of the rule of lenity. It says right. it's doing that because of the text. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and it'll sometimes it'll even say, you know, we don't need to, you know, the defendant invokes the rule of lenity, but we don't need to do that because the yeah. statute is clear. Yeah. They do mention it in Yates, the the fish spoliation, the the, the fish yeah. dumping case, everybody's and, favorite. And it's sort of part of the vagueness doctrine too, like in the honest services and the ACA cases, isn't isn't the rule of lenity kind of in conversation with the... the I, I think maybe there's some related concerns. So in, in skilling, the honest services cases, there's, you know, this honest services statute that a lot of lower courts had interpreted in this wild way to criminalize like everything you do that's like kind of shady. Yeah. I think was the, you know, the leading theory. And the court, you know, there's a vagueness challenge to that. People, the you know defendant and others saying this is unconstitutionally vague. It should be stricken, can't be enforced. And the court says no, but like we, our job is to kind of like pare it down and to kind of like interpret it according to its core. I don't know if that's exactly the same yeah. as lenity. Okay, fair enough. So is this a criminal case, Dan? No, this is a civil penalty case. So, so you know, you could, you know, uh, does the, the rule of lenity apply to civil cases? Well, according to according to Justice Gorsuch, it does. Citing this case, Commissioner versus Acker, mm-hmm. nineteen fifty nine. And so let's let's pull that case up. That looks like a a tax case. Okay, from nineteen fifty nine from the Warren Court. <laughs> yeah, and in that case, looking it up, it does not use the phrase rule of lenity, but it says the law is settled that penal statutes are to be construed strictly and that one is not to be subjected to a penalty unless the words of the statute plainly impose it. Okay. So got something, something there, but it is, it is a rule that we more typically think of as a criminal doctrine. It can come into play like if there's a statute that can be interpreted that can have both civil and criminal applications maybe, but Justice Gorsuch, you know, believes in a broad, seems to believe in a broad version of it in terms of how it works as a rule of interpretation and a broad vision of its domain. Yeah. But his belief in that is not widely shared. Yeah. Justice Jackson agrees that this should apply to penalty provisions. And, you know, basically anytime there's a penalty involved, I guess something we just call a penalty, that should invoke the rule of lenity. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that here, you know, that that actually, you know, provides strong support for the reading, rather than not just a kind of like narrow tiebreaker. But I mentioned the kind of previous thing we're talking about, the guidance documents. Interestingly, the court here, I mean, the the two justice plurality here says that there's a fair notice problem, right? That basically people haven't really realized that they're subject to this under this this extensive liability. And part of the reason that would be true is because of the the government's public guidance documents. Right. That's kind of weird, right? That normally we don't, there's a very narrow set of circumstances where we might say the government has like stopped people from, it should be a stop from like enforcing a statute in a particular way because it's like tricked people into believing that it doesn't apply. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of has some like due process roots to it. Not totally clear where that comes from. I don't think we're in that territory though. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's also not totally clear. Like that's not really a statutory interpretation principle. That's more of like a kind of due process estoppel principle. Well, so my memory is that this is related to why I asked about vagueness earlier. My memory is that that there are three related doctrines. There's lenity, there's vagueness, and there's also something called fair notice, where the court will sometimes say this is the doctrine that comes up in qualified immunity, for instance. Sometimes we'll say, look. The statute was ambiguous enough that the first time you violated it, we won't punish you. But now that we've warned you, like the next time you violate it, you're going to be penalized. Like we do that with judicial opinions sometimes. That's like the fair notice principle. And even though, like, if you took lenity seriously, you might just think, like, if it's ambiguous, you know, then it should never apply. Like, we should always say, okay, the tie goes to the defendant. But sometimes there's like this third principle floating around that's kind of like, did you get an adequate warning? Though that's also just can be like kind of a, a consideration that kind of comes into other places. I mean, qualified immunity, I mean, that's a that's a doctrine that actually has that very clearly mm-hmm. as kind of a free-floating principle. 
where does that come from? Yeah, but I think it comes up. There are some criminal cases where this comes up, where like if the state supreme court construes the statute in a like surprisingly broad way that you wouldn't have been on notice of before, then your conviction is invalid because of the surprise. But then going yeah, forward, but that's due process, right? That's that's actually going to relate to the other case we're going to talk about. This is due process too. The court says. I mean, that's court isn't saying it's unconstitutional, right? I mean, it's it's sort of saying 15, like yeah, the court yeah, says it, it's it protects the due process clause's promise. A fair <laughs> warning. Yeah, right, exactly. The rule of lenity exists in part to protect the due process clause's promise that a fair warning should be given to the world in language that the common world will understand. Yeah, I think all these things are floating together in a weird way, and it's and it's an interesting project to bring that over here so uh, two questions about so do you think why do you think other people aren't joining this dan is it the is it that we just don't believe in the rule of lenity anyway is it the extension of the rule of lenity to this context is it like what makes this controversial could be both you know but i think i don't think it's just the extension to this tax penalty context i think that i don't think that most of them agree with the idea of the rule of lenity as kind of a robust interpretive rule that that kind of does a lot of work on the front end so yeah i I sort of had the opposite reaction i think this is a coercive i mean i think they don't but i think you know they're often willing to sign off on like fine you know as long as as long as the rule in any section is last like we can sign off on it but i think justice gorsuch does have this program uh, and there's some previous concurrences here to kind of to do to civil liability what he already wants to do to criminal liability, mm-hmm. which definitely fits his view of the world. Yeah. But maybe only his view of the world. And I'm not surprised that people are skeptical yeah. of it. But the fact that Justice Jackson joins it is very interesting. Yeah. Uh, either either she just likes the rule of lenity, is happy to happy to see more of it, or she has a interesting theory that yeah. we're gonna hear more about. So we've got two two takers on that. Yeah. And then we have have a dissent, right? Is there anything more to say about the majority? I don't think so. No. I was so by the time I finished the majority, I was like, okay, that's pretty persuasive. Like that's that seems right to me. And then I read the dissent. Yeah, the dissent, Justice Spirit. This is interesting. We've got two Trump justices going head to head on statutory interpretation, and you know, and she goes through and and makes you know a fairly plausible, sensible argument that the reporting requirement is tied to individual accounts. Right. Right. And so when you, the violation is fail is a failure to make report tied to an individual account, not right. to like fill out a particular form in this, the way that the secretary wants you to fill it out. Right. I feel like she has, I think of this as like two, these are kind of functionalist read the statute as a whole argument. That's like the more you read the statute, the more the whole statute has a kind of like per account flavor. You know, that some of the penalties, not these penalties, but some of the penalties are based on the number of accounts. The, you know, it's just, that's a kind of like atmospheric argument. And a sort of it is true that we usually read statutes as a whole, not like isolated phrases. And then she has this out formalized, out formal the formalist point, right? So Justice Gorsuch says, look, the duty is to file a report, not an account. And so it's one penalty per report. And she says, Okay, true. But the F bar, the thing you didn't file, is not the report. It's a form. <laughs> the form could contain the report is like the duty to report an account, yeah. you know, and your F bar might contain alerting them to the existence of the account. Right. Your F bar might contain twenty seven reports if you have twenty seven things to report, uh, or it might contain one report. But therefore, your fail to file an F bar could be a failure to file one report or a failure to file twenty seven reports. Yeah, because you know, you just a score such, and this goes to the point we were talking about earlier, are sort of letting the accident of how of what piece of paper you're supposed to file like yeah. shape your interpretation of the statute, which is kind of weird. That, that seemed like a really good point. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a strong view with this case, but I'll, that seemed like a really good point. I think Justice Barrett might yeah. about it. Yeah. I do think the strongest point for the majority is really kind of more of a fairness point, right? Yeah. That, you know, this does seem like an awful lot of money to impose on people who, you know, like don't even know about their reporting obligations and it turns out they have a bunch of accounts. I mean, that's right. it's pretty aggressive. Um, although, again, it does seem like Mr. Bittner at least does seem to have an awful lot of money to spare. Well, yeah, but you know, I'm not supposed to just like take people's money because they have a lot of money. I, I agree. <laughs> you shouldn't. You shouldn't. You shouldn't believe that. You're not supposed to believe that. I don't believe that. But still, I'm just. I'm just saying. If, if we are talking about fairness, I mean, I'm sure Mr. Bittner has perfectly legitimate reasons for forgetting to tell anybody about his 16 million dollars of those bank accounts. Yeah. 
anything else to talk about on that in terms of the descent it doesn't engage with the kind of linity notice stuff at all right mostly not i mean yeah. the they mention there there is this part 3 where the descent mentions that you know well this is a substantial penalty there is a safe haven that you know you can get a safe haven basically if it's a non-wilful violation and you have reasonable cause and then come forward and report the amount like then you're sort of you get a safe haven and that he he litigated below whether he might have the safe haven or not there's like that's like a little bit i think of a response yeah. of like look there are parts of the statute designed to mitigate unfairness he litigated this argument that it was unfair he lost he abandoned it when he came here but the defense is available for litigants who can satisfy it which i take it is is designed a little bit to defang the like yeah. so unfair argument i just thought this was a this was a pleasure to see the court you know yeah. having, the, having this kind of fight these, yeah. these are the five four decisions I uh, I live for. This is more of an our wheelhouse. Okay, another one puzzles me a little bit too. Cruz versus Arizona. This mm-hmm. is a federal courts case. This is you know a, a case that I think you are going to be eager to talk about. For that reason, I'm going to make you break down exactly how to set up the question here. Okay, so this is a habeas case, a state post conviction death case, right? Yep. Involving Mr. Cruz, who was uh, sentenced to death in Arizona. And because death cases take a long time, the law changes a lot while they're happening. Yeah. But basically, at the time of his first trial and appeal, the Arizona Supreme Court thought that, well, at the time of his first trial and appeal, the judge thought that there was no requirement that he get to tell the sentencing jury that if they give him life, he'll be without parole. Which the jury might care about because they, you know, might think, yeah, we don't ever think he should be released. Well, and here the jury did care about it. They said after the trial, like, oh, that was why we imposed death, and it turned out that was wrong. Right, it turns out that wasn't their only option. Yeah, and subsequent case law made clear that that that's wrong. The, the Supreme Court later, you know, kind of summarily reverses. An right. Arizona case saying, right. so, so yeah. the, the state, the, the Arizona courts had been like, yeah, this, there's this rule from this case Simmons. It doesn't apply to us because, you know, we're special and the Southwest is cool. And then the Supreme Court was like, no, that, that's wrong. And this other, in, in a different, a different capital defendant's case. Right. In a different capital defendant's case later, the Supreme Court summarily reverses, you know, as to Arizona saying, okay, this principle does apply to Arizona's sentencing scheme, you know, just like it applies to other people's sentencing schemes. Right. So previously in 2008, Mr. Cruz loses on the grounds that this principle doesn't apply to Arizona. 2016, a case called Lynch, the U.S. Supreme Court says actually this principle does apply to Arizona. Okay, so now you can see if you're Mr. Cruz, you're like, all right, well, I should go get my death sentence reversed, right? Because now the Supreme Court has made clear that this was an error uh, in my case. I think everybody agrees it's an error in his case, and the Supreme Court's now made that clear. And so he tries to go back into state court to file for that. And as a matter of state procedural law, the state Supreme Court says, no, you can't do that. You're out of you're out of tickets for review here in state court because we have a limit on the number of post-conviction relief tickets you can file in state court. There is an exception, give, right? You're allowed to do it when what? We'll only give you one if there's a significant change in the law. Okay, and that's and just to be clear, that's a federal constitutional requirement? That's a state. So as far as this case is written, that's a state constitutional requirement. State, okay. Now, now okay. hanging over this case is a question about, like, does the federal constitution, how much does the federal constitution govern the kinds of state post-conviction relief a state has mm-hmm. to give? Um, and that may be part of what explains some of the weirdness in this yeah. case we'll talk about in a second. But on the, on the paper, it's the state that says, you know, we'll give you relief yeah. if you have a significant change in the law. Okay, so, and so normally you go to a state court, they say you don't get this thing because of state law, and you try to go to the Supreme Court, what's supposed to happen? You lose because that is what is called an adequate and independent state ground, right? You, yeah. you Maybe you have a valid federal claim, but your federal claim was rejected for a state law reason, and that that state law reason is like adequate and separate from the merits. Yeah. So and, if you go into so state if, court and file after the statute of limitations, you can't say, well... But I have a good claim. Or you forfeited the argument under, you know, forfeiture or state forfeiture rules. You didn't ever right. raise it and you try to raise it later. Exactly. Because, you know, then the Supreme Court, if they tried to weigh in on the federal the Supreme Court doesn't have normally have power to interpret state law. And if it tried to weigh in on the federal issue, it would be an advisory opinion that doesn't matter. Right. But in a whole range of cases, many of them habeas cases, the court sometimes kind of pierces the state law issue and says that the state law decision is either not adequate or not independent. Either because the independent part 
they don't always disentangle the words, but the independent part might mean that like really the rule is kind of related to the federal issue that we have to review. Like when the state constitutional doctrine is mingled with the federal federal constitution? That could be, that could be exactly. Or, and then adequate means that like, there's something fishy here about the states, about the state's doctrine that we're just like some version of, of we don't buy it, which in the uh, 1960s was often, or 1950s was sort of when state courts would like come up with ticky tacky procedural requirements that also nobody had ever heard of before. (laughs) To stop like civil rights protesters from yeah, you know, so you show up to file your writ in the Supreme Court, and they say, "Ah, this has never been written anywhere, but common law requires that all of your filings be on extra large paper." Yeah, denied. It's technically a state law question, and so you know maybe there could be a secret common law requirement that you file on fourteen page paper, like at some level, it violates the process clause. But there are plenty of these that like don't quite that aren't unconstitutionally crazy requirements, but are sufficiently sketchy. That the Supreme Court said, well, we're not buying it. And I think that's what the Supreme Court just did here. Yeah, although, so the Supreme Court is going to say this is not adequate. Basically saying, like, we disagree with how you, you state court understand this phrase, like, you know, change in law, right? The state Supreme Court's interpretation of its rule was, quote, so novel and unfounded that it does not constitute an adequate state procedural ground. And yes, and so this this relates to what we were talking about a minute ago. There, there, you know, there are these you know kind of due process cases that are not exactly adequate and independent state grounds cases. But like you know, there's this case Bowie where the Southern State Court just completely reinterprets the trespass statute to like apply to civil rights protesters mm-hmm. uh, in a way that it clearly didn't under precedent before. And the Supreme Court is like, no, you can't just like completely make up, you know, completely change the meaning of a statute retroactively just to kind of screw over civil rights protesters. That violates due process. That's not this exactly. The more relevant case is one that the majority doesn't cite. I think only the dissent cites, which is a case called Montgomery versus Louisiana, a late stage Kennedy opinion. Because one attitude a lot of states had before Montgomery was when it comes to post-conviction relief, like on your first appeal, we got to like apply the law fairly. We can't come up with new stuff, whatever. We apply the law at the time. We do our best and then we're final. But some states took the view that on post-conviction relief, like we don't have to do that at all. Like the federal government has its post-conviction relief. We can have post-conviction relief or not. And so if our post-conviction relief is kind of weirdly stingy or even arbitrarily stingy, you know, that's just like not a due process violation the same way that like the governor not handing out a pardon is not a due process violation. And that was the conventional wisdom until in 2016 in a case dealing with like the retroactivity of the rules about juvenile sentencing, Montgomery. The court said actually the due process clause and the supremacy clause like control these proceedings and say that if as a state you have post conviction relief proceedings, there are various retroactivity rules you're required to have and ways you're required to treat them. It's like not crazy, but it was a big deal. Yeah, and I don't want to get totally sidetracked on that, but it does relate to that question that we've talked about before that I'm interested in about harmless error doctrine, which yes. the court has sort of said, you don't have to have, you know, you actually don't have to have criminal appeals. And the court has, has said that before, and it's never, you know, really, really had to confront that, but it said that. Uh, but if you do, you have to follow, you know, these federal rules for how, you know, claims have to be considered. So it's it's kind of similar to that. So that kind of concern, I think, is like, it's hanging over the the background here, right? Is that this is again state post conviction relief that's using a retroactivity rule that's narrower than the rule that the Supreme Court would like them to use, although, you know, whether it's unconstitutionally narrow or whatever is you could debate. And so there's some that's sort of hanging over the background. Yeah. And I think at least some people might have been worried that the court could use this occasion to I don't know, even in dicta, like expand or contract those kinds of due process principles. But the court stays away from them entirely. So in a way, the what the court has done here in relying only on the adequate independent state ground doctrine is a narrower rule that doesn't change that much either way. Yeah. So are are you surprised by this outcome? I was yeah. a little surprised because I, I guess I, I maybe I like wouldn't have been surprised by this outcome on the court a few years ago. But with the court's move to the right, this case sort of has the like feel of a kind of like, well, let's let's you know bend over backwards a little bit to make sure like capital defendants aren't getting screwed, which is kind of where the court was some years ago. It's, it was still sort of like that with when it was the Kennedy court. 
And my sense is that, you know, the court today, you know, is less like that. But here, you know, we do have the liberal justices. So to my opinion, liberal justices join, and then you have Kavanaugh and the chief. I was surprised. I wouldn't quite go as far as bend over backwards to help the capital defendant. I think it's more just like, in this case, the lower court decision just doesn't make a bunch of damn sense. Like, obviously, there was some kind of change in the law because the Arizona Supreme Court used to go one way, now they go the other way. And to say simultaneously, like, well, what we did at the time was okay because that was the law, but we didn't really change the law because we got summarily reversed, and summary reversals mean nothing has changed. I think at like an intuitive level before you get into the technicalities, it just feels like that's some kind of trick. Yeah. Although, I mean, it's interesting, the, the court says in a footnote, like, we don't need to resolve whether like the state court is being like hostile towards federal law or or discriminating against federal law. Like they're right. disavowing kind of resting on the idea that like the states are like the state is like deliberately trying to get around federal law. I think they're not exactly accusing the Arizona Supreme Court of cheating, even though that's sort of what the ISG doctrine is about. And they're not exactly sort of trying to nullify the death penalty. I think there's just a level of like this just doesn't make a ton of sense. And while Justice Barrett may have a technical argument about why, you know, state courts get to do things that don't make a ton of sense, apparently Roberts and Kavanaugh yeah. are not, don't love technical arguments that preserve things that don't make a ton of sense. Yeah. I mean, although, do you agree it doesn't make a ton of sense? I mean, like, what change in law mean could mean different things? Because there's con- other contexts. So, I mean, basically, you know, I think the problem, as the court saw it, is like, look, you said overruling a precedent isn't a change in law, even though you'd previously said that was a change in law. And Justice Barrett has various kind of like, well, if you dig into it, that's not, you know, it's those other things they said were different and this is not exactly that. But aren't there other contexts where we like say something like, you know, the interpretation changes, but like the law doesn't change? Doesn't this kind of come up in like... Teague versus Lane, I, you know, sure. some situations where where we say something is not a new rule, it's just kind of like the court recognizing a rule that was always there before. Yes, no, and, and Justice Barrett has some examples from the way the federal courts of appeals work that sometimes they the same kind of the same kind of shape, where like your court of appeals rules against you for a while, and the U.S. Supreme Court adopts the other side of the split, and then we say, well, the law has never really changed. It's just that your court of appeals got it wrong. The technical level, I don't think Justice Barrett's necessarily wrong, but she has this thing at the end where she says, "Look, if I were on the Arizona Supreme Court, I'm not sure I would have done this." And I guess that is how I feel. It's like, other than a general desire to preserve capital convictions, or you know, something like that, I sort of don't see why we wouldn't try to make this case match the more recent case. If it were up to me, match in the sense in the sense of. Lynch got relief because we because he yeah. had a right to be told about his yeah and so and that's the federal constitutional requirement and yeah in theory could there still be a path to federal uh, habeas relief if you know the court hadn't figured out a way to get this will presumably result in Cruz getting state habeas relief state post conviction relief but yeah. if that wouldn't the case wouldn't you know would there still be some possibility for federal uh, habeas relief I mean there's various rules about like when you can file a federal habeas petition and like when you get a chance to file a second one whether there's like a new rule and I don't I haven't broken down in my mind whether that would that would have been an out here or not. Yeah. So Justice Barrett says he has a, he's only filed in federal habeas once and that is currently pending. So I think he's got a federal habeas claim, a timely initial federal filing in federal court, apparently decided by the district court in 2018 and, you know, now pending the ninth circuit. So I think he does have a federal habeas claim pending. Now I guess that claim is subject to EDPA. Yeah. And under other principles that probably still have, Five to six justices supporting them. Yeah. You basically never win. Yeah. Yeah. And there would be kind of a deferential attitude right. towards this, towards the interpretation of federal law. And here, state right. post-conviction, you don't have that. And one interesting note is that the court has gotten more willing to get involved at the state post-conviction stage. Yeah. Uh, in recent years, I think precisely because EDPA, which, you know, makes it very hard to get to the underlying merits of a constitutional issue on federal habeas review you can avoid that if you if you come in the Supreme court comes in and reviews on certiorari a, a state post-conviction proceeding yes indeed i mean it's funny in the i think 60 years ago in the sort of heyday of federal habeas pre-edpa there was there was I think this was even stated the court sometimes had a policy that it preferred to wait to get the case on federal habeas yeah because the federal district court could develop the record in sort of you know had lots of tools to develop the record and take new evidence and then the Supreme court could get a better a better look at the case and that is definitely not the way it works anymore. Yeah. Another five four with Justice Barrett dissenting. Yeah. Do you, 
not a good week for her. Well, a very good week for her. <laughs> very good descents. Yeah. I guess so two questions. So one is, which Barrett descent is better? I think that's right. I mean, I think they're both very good. I think they're both very good. And I do think also, well, this opinion, the majority opinion of just a Sotomayor might be the best Sotomayor opinion I've ever read. It was just wow. like, you can debate it, but it's quite straightforward and persuasive. And I just thought it was, you know, a very good piece of work. One last connection that some people have spotted worth bringing the podcast full circle. Do you think there's a connection between this case and Moore versus Harper? So recall the underlying kind of merits problem in Moore versus Harper where we started is to what extent the U.S. Supreme Court gets to second guess novel and questionable state Supreme Court decisions that don't, you know, you know, but where part of its dispute is like, oh, come on, is that really how your state law works? And you know, people say, well, we mostly don't do that. State courts can decide mm-hmm. what state law is. Now, the doctrinal vehicles are different, but here are five justices, not all of whom we might think of as, you know, on the, on, as more versus Harper Hawks yeah. doing that. I sort of imagine this is going to be quoted if there is a majority opinion yeah. of more versus Harper. I sort of imagine this is going to get, get play. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if there's obvious language that you would pull out, but I could see that. It would be kind of a gotcha point because it would be kind of presumably the conservative justice using this to get Justice Sotomayor. Yeah. I mean, it's a broader, I think, after, you know, the independent legislature doctrine, of course, came up in Bush versus Gore, which was very political. And afterwards, I think it was Henry Monahan who wrote a long article, more or less saying, look, this problem happens all the time, that the Supreme Court actually has to sort of second guess state decisions about state law yeah. that are part of the contracts clause or habeas or buoy or all these other, you know, and it has to be deferential and there are different doctrines for how it does it and different ways to think about it. But it's not like a thing that Chief Justice Rehnquist made up only for, yeah. for Bush versus Gore. And I guess I do think at a minimum, a hypothetical more sovereign majority is going to say that. It's going to say, look, we confront this problem all the time. We don't usually confront the elections clause, but it's a like widespread problem and we're not doing something totally yeah. unheard of. Yeah. Okay. So a couple yeah. interesting opinions, other developments. I think that's maybe where we should call it an episode. Anything else we didn't cover? If so, I'm sure somebody will complain about it. Yeah. So this is the time of the year where I really kind of enjoy the podcast because we can you know, we get the opinions. <laughs> I enjoy it all the time, but it's it's a little simpler when we just get some opinions and we can read them and kind of react to them uh, rather yes. than trying to just predict what's going to happen. And but they also aren't the opinions that you're like tired of talking about, or you mean the ones that are c- going to come later? Yeah. Yeah. No, but yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we're going to want to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want to talk about them all. Okay. The big ones. We're going to record in June. Oh, yeah. Well, no, yeah. I, aren't you going like going to Malta or something? <laughs> I'll be, I'll be abroad for several weeks, but okay. I'll figure out, I'll figure out a way to record. Okay. Yeah. We're going to get you a portable recorder and like you'll be recording at like, you know, midnight, you know, wherever you are or something. I'll be goofier than usual. <laughs> You're not very goofy. This is me being goofy. Okay, well, that's not very goofy. Okay, so lead us out, Will. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the Constitutional Law Institute for sponsoring all of our endeavors. Please continue to rate and review us wherever you found the show. We've had a sort of drop-off in reviews lately, and it'd be great to get some more, especially as we're kicking into busy season of the show. I'd like to help people, help people find the show. Yeah, and, and share it using other mediums if you'd like. Visit our website, dividedargument.com, where we have uh, transcripts of the episodes that go up pretty soon after the ed- episodes are posted. Store.dividedargument.com, where we have uh, merchandise. Shoot us an email, pod at dividedargument.com. Leave us a voicemail, 314-649-3790. We don't always play those, but we do listen to them. And occasionally, uh, we, we will play them, especially if they're in song format. And if there is a long delay before our next episode, it is because the podcast is subject to severe penalties for our failure to disclose our foreign bank accounts where we are storing all the, the lucrative rewards of our you know, meager merchandise sales. But not as severe as before. Thanks, Mrs. Gorsuch.